0: Welcome Welcome Hello. everyone to the next show um, With Monique van Dusseldorp From yeah. Amsterdam and David Matten from London. And me, Ina Weisselzer, from Hamburg. In this show, uh, and with all the other stuff that we do at Next, we aim to shift your perspective on digital business. So, no matter whether you are a thinker or a doer, a marketer, strategist, designer, consultant, or creative, we want to inspire you and we hope to trigger some thoughts and aim to invite a wide range of interesting people from around the globe. We hope to uh, and today is already our 15th show, it's amazing. And I'm thrilled to welcome analyst and author Azim Azair to the show today. Uh, I first saw him, I think a few years ago um, at the Web Summit in Lisbon, somewhere at a hidden stage. And those stages are usually the ones where the real interesting stuff is happening. Um, I think that was before he became a superstar newsletter writer. Um, and I don't know about you, but i really missed those huge events with thousands of people and all the energy. Usually at this time of the year, I would be at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas with, I don't know, 18,000 people from around the globe attending that event. The South by will start this afternoon, actually online, of course. And I scrolled through the program already the other day, and one thing has not changed. You still feel completely overwhelmed by the offer of sessions there. um, And you get this feeling of FOMO still. Um, Yeah, well, my God, I don't miss the jet lag. I don't miss the one kilometer long queues at the convention center, but I really miss the random inspiration and the energy there. But we hope to give you some energy and inspiration today. David, what is your inspiration these days?
1: Yes, my inspiration, my moment of recent weeks has to be uh, the amazing auction by the London Auction House Christie's of the digital artist Beeple's um, NFT artwork every day the first 5,000 days. A couple of weeks ago, I boldly predicted Um, In my newsletter that that work would sell for seven figures for over a million (laughs) dollars, I was only wrong by a factor of 69. It sold for 69 million dollars, an incredible sum of money. Clearly, everyone, I mean, you guys have heard a whole ton about NFTs in the last couple of weeks. People are asking, you know, how can anyone possibly spend 69 million dollars on a digital (laughs) file that we can all copy, that anyone can see on the Internet and so on? And without monopolising this show to talk about NFTs, um, we know that it's a unique code associated with a piece of work that allows us to say this is the original, this is the one and only, this is the authentic work. Um, And so it's bringing the dynamics that have always existed in the physical art world to digital art too. It's possible now to own a digital original, the true, the one, the only created by the hand of the artist in a way that it wasn't before NFTs, before non-fungible tokens. Um, I've spent my life or a lot of my life going around talking to people about status and how the basic human need that is status drives so much consumer behavior, drives so much human behavior. And this is a great example of that. It's all about the status of owning the original. Uh, and I think NFTs clearly are going to, you know, we may well be in a bubble now. Um, the prices are going to be chaotic, I suspect. But NFTs are here to stay. And the, the the transformation they are bringing to the digital art world is here to stay. And I can't wait as well to ask Azim what he thinks about all this uh, in a minute or two. But that was very much my moment of the last couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, absolutely amazing might be a bit like photography uh, 60, 70 years back when you could get a photograph, but it was the real one by the photographer. It's a bit of that feeling, but still. Monique, how about you? What did you dug up? Well, listening to Dave talk about NFTs, I suddenly want
2: to be an artist again. No. <laughs> There's also something fishy, I feel, about the, the, the ridiculous amount of money in the sense that, I mean, the involvement of people and Christie's and it It feels like a media event to establish a completely new market. It feels like whoever spending all that money is also going to earn a lot of that money because it's it, it's suddenly. I mean, it's so suddenly, I mean, gradually and then suddenly. Anyway, but my share is also about the art. I mean, as some of you may know, i'm I'm obsessing about, you know, what are the new forms of online events, how do they work, and what is the new space opening up this year, and and I've been looking at the performing arts uh, the last few weeks, so I've been buying tickets and sitting in front of my screen, and you know, concerts and plays, and, and, I must, and I've been calling the organizers to hear how things are going, and um, when we think of an online event now, we feel it's sort of in the realm of television, it is the camera, and moving back and forth, talk shows and, and these things work really well. I mean, no mistake there. But when creative people like theatrical companies suddenly say, Okay, all the world's our stage. We're going to do something online for everybody to see. They also bring this, you know, new sensibility. And there's one example particularly that I want to mention, because it's a bit of a national pride as well, is the in the International Theatre Amsterdam. They've launched it Live and basically they um, take back some old plays they have and put them online. But the way they've done that, I've been—I bought myself a ticket for uh, the, the, the Greek Tragedies, which is a compilation play of four Shakespearean uh, plays. And it takes six hours. It's a six hour live stream of a play in Dutch with French and English uh, subtitles. Thousands of people across the world have watched this. I mean they have up to 6,000 people across the world buying a ticket for a play in a theater that only has 900 seats. And they did so many interesting things. They had a ticket tape running along the screen which had news from Roman, you know, Caesar's death is imminent, it was news like this, plus news that was real news of the day, plus tweets of viewers of the show, I mean, why don't we have tweets of viewers of the show in a ticker tape rolling by, and there was all these layers and depths, and there was the camera crew and an actor that walked outside, and people watched him not understanding what was happening, and started filming, I mean, brilliant, honestly brilliant, if you have a chance, you should have a look, so I'm sort of positive that, now give creative people online events, and they'll do something really creative with it,
0: I like it, yeah. Okay, so I that got was the my message. We'll have those little <laughs> bar underneath. But <laughs> well, the summer. main thing was oh, it, it's it. so deep,
2: you know, there were so many levels and so many yeah. things to to look at all the time that, yeah,
0: you know, something there. There's something there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. So thank you. I will join you in the chat right now. If you have any questions, let me know and I'll forward them magically, not on the top bar, but magically to David and Monique for Azeem um so see you in a bit and have fun introducing our guest stuff today yes 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 yes,
2: it's my role i can introduce the guest to you i'm super proud that we have Azar on the show um i'm a podcast listener i'm one of those people that you know survives this year by taking lots and lots and lots of walks and i take longer walks when i listen to his podcast because they're so interesting and he always has you know if you want to feel a lot smarter than you really are like i always want to listen to his podcast, because very smart people talking about all the problems of today. His name, the name of the podcast and the newsletter is Exponential View, and it's about how society and the political economy are changing under the force of technology. We're going to discuss that. But a little bit of background as well, which is always interesting. I mean, Azeem by now is such an expert. He's on the advisory board of lots of things. He advises the Harvard Business Review. He used to advise the CTO of Accenture. Ada Foundation, Work Economic Forum. But that's not all. He's also a partner in a portfolio company called Kindred Capital, VC. Lots of different companies, really from micro gifting to quantum cryptography. We'll discuss later. But what did he do before that? Working for The Economist, Reuters, BBC, FD, founded and sold a company, established a lot of other things. But he studied politics, philosophy, and economics. And this is the very last thing on his LinkedIn profile, and I have to ask him about it. He sold color posters featuring fractals and artificial worlds, extensively used ray tracing techniques, and at the time advanced computer graphics to generate scenes. I have the feeling that's where his interest was born. So join us for a conversation with Azeem Azar to change your perspective. All right, I think we're here, Azim.
3: Hi there, how are you? Hi.
2: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Tell us first about those fractals. What what was the story there? Because to go from philosophy to AI, there is something in the middle, and I have the feeling that the fractals were exactly
3: the same. Yeah, there might have been. Uh, well, you have to go back to, um, you know, to the origin of computer graphics, uh, which really started to take hold in the late 1970s. Um, uh, you know, before then, computers often didn't have any way of doing graphics, you may remember ASCII art. Uh, And so uh, if you think about the march of Moore's law between about 1980 and 1990, when I started at university, you would have seen a a 1000 fold improvement in uh, computing. Uh, And so you could start to do graphics. And um, there there were two different domains, disciplines. One was this idea of of ray tracing where essentially it's very computationally intensive because you have a light source and you have to take a ray of light from every point in the light source into a 3D model and see what it looks like when it hits the camera. Um, it's not too dissimilar to the techniques that are used in, in uh, computer games or or mo- uh, 3D animational uh, animated movies. But the second thing that was happening was this idea of Mandelbrot sets and fractal mathematics, which had started from the 1960s, a French mathematician, Benoit Mandelbrot, um, trying to explore these phenomena of recursive uh, functions. And so with with anyone being able to get hold of computers, the idea that you could run these complex um, programs very quickly became very, very accessible. And so I was just at that age, 19 years old, where I could take these two techniques and put them together. Um, And, uh, you know, you could do landscapes, and you could do Roman amphitheaters and put them against fractal (laughs) landscapes. And then the question is, how did you output them? And there weren't that many color laser printers um, at the time. Uh, So I found someone who had a color laser printer, and I used to output them. And I sold about four or five thousand pounds worth back in 1993 uh, <laughs> which as a student is um, is not bad but the margins were terrible so I think the gross margin was as I recall about 10 percent so um, I couldn't okay
2: but look you saw the technique you figured out the, the tooling and you saw the business and you even remember the gross margin I mean my memories yeah. of my 90s are completely different I assure you and David. what's more
1: <laughs> now you could you know get hold of one of those um, digitize it, burn it like those Banksy people did and, and sell it as sell the digital version as an NFT.
2: Oh, Azim, the, yeah, yeah, right. the very first one. Let's look it up and sell it to somebody watching the show.
3: It's funny. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, I, I do sometimes try to find the, the, the tools. A the problem that you actually run into, of course, is that it was all running on Windows, uh, because back then there was nothing on Linux and a different Mac operating system. My mum has one image left. Um, fact I may even have one up here I'm gonna see oh look 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 this is a moment in art history
2: yeah you can burn it and make an NFT out of it Ah. (laughs) exactly that's it (laughs) yeah
3: 1991
2: well thank you so much for that insight into you know where it all started um we're going to talk about really big topics you know how tech is changing society but um, I think Dave and I discussed before the first thing we are really interested in is you talk a lot about deep tech tech that is you know your your window is not two or five years but 20 years or even beyond what is the tech you at the moment feel is the thing we should all know more about what is the tech that will really change the world as we know it
3: well, you know, I think that my general um, hypothesis is that we don't know enough about technology uh, full stop anyway. Uh, and and we don't understand how it changes our, um, our mental frames uh, uh, about the world. And that's as true for simple, understandable technologies like computing uh, or genomics as it is for the more kind of co- complicated ones. Um, but I think if there are, Two things that are coming along that are really, really going to be game-changing. The first will be quantum computing, uh, and the second will be the maturation of uh, blockchain, um, uh, blockchain fabrics. So you know, particularly the programmable ones like Ethereum and Polkadot, Um, and and those are two areas where I think there are communities that understand them and understand them very well, but by and large, it's not you know, broadly discussed or broadly understood. Yeah.
1: And uh, I mean, my immediate uh, follow up to that is, I mean, let's take quantum computing first. What is it that's transformational about quantum computing? It feels to me still a relatively obscure domain. Like mm. most people don't, you know, they know it's out there, they don't really understand it. Is it simply yeah. computers are gonna be so much faster, you're going to be able to compute so much more? Uh, what's the big deal?
3: Well you know I, th- I think the first issue with the word quantum computing is the word computing because it uh, has us analogizing to classical computing but they're two very very different things. Um, quantum computing is you know it's a little bit like a calendar and classical computing is a little bit like a brick. I mean they are both things but you can't really compare them uh, and I think it hurts our mental frame when we start from trying to build that analogy of of classical computing and saying what is what is quantum computing um really about because the 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 framing of quantum computing the maths from which it is fundamentally built is so different to the maths of um boolean logic from which traditional computers are built so the question is what does it really give us and um it renders accessible parts of nature, the natural world, natural phenomena, in ways that we simply haven't been able to to access them. Um, so, if you try to, you can measure, um, you can measure the 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 length of a road with a with a one meter long ruler, uh, but you can't measure the length of your child's toes with a one meter long ruler because you need a centimeter ruler or something smaller Uh, and in a way that's what classical computing has done as we've looked at the natural phenomena Um, we've had to make so many um, shortcuts generalities assumptions in order to fit the paradigm of our natural world which is quantum in its essence into this classical paradigm Um, and so quantum computing gives us access to those things and those things are processes that we have existence proofs for that are incredibly powerful. So we know that plants around the world take atmospheric nitrogen and turn it into useful stuff. Um, And they do it very, very efficiently. When humans try to do that, um, we have to use a Harbour-Bosch process, which involves 450 degrees centigrade and 200 atmospheres of pressure um, and about 2% of the world's energy utilisation. So we do it really inelegantly because we have taken a kind of classical physics approach to how we solve the, harbor, the, the nitrogen fixation problem through Harbour Bosch. Plants use a, quantum, a natural approach, which is a quantum mechanical approach, and do it much more elegant and mu- much more uh, refined way. So I think that that's, um, that's a kind of staggering shift that that occurs as we move towards uh, quantum computing, but I think there are some other things that will, will emerge that are more complex, which is that, of course, classical computing is built up off this idea of the binary Boolean logic, which comes from, in its sort of historical antecedents, a kind of Aristotelian framing of the world, right? Aristotelian rationality, uh, black and white, one and zero, um, which makes its way through to lots of other frameworks and structures that we have in the world. Um, once we start to think, think in this sort of quantum world frame, I just question about how it will start make us think about classifications and taxonomies, which um, really uh, come from the same sort of uh, class of, of ideas uh, as the thing that drives classical computing.
2: And, and do you think we can? I mean, it's almost sounds almost like um, quantum computers can emulate or, or be in the same quantum stage as nature and sorting out all kinds of processes in a way that we actually cannot understand. I mean, I've I've had the quantum computing explanation quite a few times now where something can be in the same time and at the same time at another place. My mind doesn't handle it. It's mm-hmm. gone, you know, immediately. It's Oh, OK, I believe yeah. you, but it is not my brain doesn't doesn't have the capacity to understand it. Uh, luckily there are people that can eh? I mean uh, it is not but is is are people able to understand the consequences of quantum computing if the way quantum computing works is actually quite far removed from the way we like to well i sort world?
3: i mean we we live in a in a world where we make very rapid um very rapid approximations about things otherwise our brains would explode right it's there's so much going on in the world and our eyes are taking in so much and ears and so on so we we use these heuristics in order to um to live and like you don't want to use superposition when you're in the kitchen cooking something because it doesn't apply so it would be expensive i think it is it is understandable um partly because someone like me who only has high school physics uh, can start to understand it, uh, and it can make it can make sense. It's just that the you have to break the analogy um, with what you have been taught previously, and I think that there's a general problem uh, about how we are teaching people about about the world. So, for example, um, one my eldest child is. Um, doing his high school exams which are called the GCSEs in the UK or he won't be doing the exams he'll be assessed because of the pandemic Um, and he's not taught any notions of quantum um, up until that level he is taught a lot of 18th and 19th century physics like hooks spring constant how much does a spring stretch when you put a weight onto it um which which is not that kind of useful in a sense Um, and so I think that we've lost track of the ability to to deliver this kind of wonder into curricula um, and that is actually um, that is problematic and it's particularly problematic in the quantum space because it requires a use of different maths and a different framing which is all accessible right I mean the maths that you have in quantum physics you can get into just at a school level a high school level but um, Monique, you have been trained with the wrong paradigm so yeah. heavily that yeah. it's difficult to reverse out of it.
2: All right, David, unless you have another question about the quantum side, let's move to the blockchain side. <laughs> yeah, let's
1: move to blockchain.
2: That seems to move so fast. I mean, I, I read that the, the Chinese five-year government plans already have a lot of blockchain in them, and it that's probably more centrally controlled than the whole idea of blockchain might be but what will happen with the kinds of blockchain you envisage changing our, our societies our lives in yeah. due course what is it that they do so so i think let's let's not talk about
3: bitcoin and let's talk instead about the programmable blockchains like um, uh, ethereum uh, for for example so and um, the key the key thing about uh, the the way that i look at ethereum and i'm not like I'm not an expert uh, at all on it, though. Is that it provides a mechanism for establishing uh, trust in a in a system without there needing to be a an organisation that guarantees trust. So what do we mean by that, right? What we mean is that we live our lives in this in our world, and we go off and we pay for something um, with our credit card, and somewhere in the line. Like I'm anonymous. When I walk into a merchant, they don't know who I am. I mean, my dry cleaner uh, lets me pay later because he's known me over 10 years. Right. But you'd walk into a normal shop and you're not you don't, no one knows you. The fact that your money is good is guaranteed by the ban- the clearing bank that that uh, through the, the financial system. And we've had to establish organizations and institutions that that do that. And the thing that about Ethereum is that um, you can establish that trust programmatically within the computational domain without there needing to be these in, these trust-giving institutions. And they're not just giving trust. They actually take an incredible cut <laughs> while, while they do that. And I think yeah. that that's the thing that is exciting. So a really tiny example, uh, which is huge in the real world, which very few of us will have touched, is that in order for the financial sy- service system to work, uh, you need liquidity. And so in the back, behind the scenes, behind the scenes, behind the scenes, liquidity is shifting between major, major financial institutions to ensure that transactions can take place. And they make a ton of money over the course of a year from providing that liquidity. And people like the four of us don't have access to that as an economic opportunity. Um, We get intermediated so many levels that at the end of the day, we're making negative interest rates. So one of the things that can happen with within something like an uh, a decentralized finance world, which could be built on Ethereum, is that people like us, who might have five hundred euros or thousand euros, or in David's case, two thousand euros, um, can can uh, provide liquidity into the market should we want to, and be able to participate and not be denied the 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 opportunity to do that. So those are the types of shifts that you can imagine happening. And and I, as an old time Internet guy, remember the discussions happening between uh, around the Internet uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. And the centralized people, the telephone companies were saying the Internet cannot work because you never get the quality of service. You never get the reliability. And you have to remember the internet's architecture was back then very bottom up. Anyone could connect, any node could do anything. It was super decentralized. It's not this kind of horrible, gargantuan, Facebook squiddy type internet we live in today. Yeah. And so it's quite similar, I think, when we look at blockchain, which is that I, I can go on on my blockchain wallet, my Ethereum wallet, and I can provide liquidity the way a major investment bank can provide liquidity. Only I do it with a thousand bucks, not a, not a billion. And, and I think that that's really interesting and transforming. And each time we have distributed capacity and skills very broadly into our economies, good things have happened. It happened when we did that with the printing press. It happened when we did it with typing and we introduced the QWERTY keyboard. You grow markets, you increase labor pools and you, inc- you, create, you create opportunity.
2: Where will this innovation Take place first. I mean, there's a lot of lot of reason for organizations to resist uh, this change. Of course, I mean the banks are put case in point because they would lose some of their some of all of their margins. They wouldn't have a reason to exist. But taking that in mind, where is is Europe the place where this could happen? Is this a Silicon Valley story? Is this China, or could it be anywhere? What what is your feeling? Where is the the most rapid and most effective innovation taking place when it comes to these huge tech uh, so- solutions, options. um Well,
3: blockchain's a bit of a weird one because uh, people are sort of all over the place, and there are a few hotspots in um, in Asia, like Singapore, and um, and and there's there's kind of mining happening in China, but not sort of develop product development. And Ice- Iceland,
2: uh, you know, because Iceland has mining yeah. as well. Yeah.
3: Um, London is pretty strong. Silicon Valley is strong. Switzerland is, is strong. I mean, I think it can, can happen anywhere where it won't happen, um, will be obviously in the institutions. I mean, I love the story of, of, of Galileo. So, you know, in 1633, he's put under house arrest, uh, because he's demonstrated that, uh, the sort of heliocentric view of the solar system, it's not until 1979, 346 years, that um, Pope John Paul II ordered a papal, papal commission into his conviction. And it took them 13 years to report and to overturn the findings. Now, you know, I don't think the banks, traditional banks are going to be much quicker um, than uh, than the Catholic Church uh, in all of this. So um you know, it, the the innovation will happen elsewhere. But the thing to note is that these companies are getting big very, very quickly. So Coinbase is now a hundred billion dollar company, um, uh, heading into its um, uh, into its IPO. Uh, the The other thing to note is that there are all sorts of issues with with um, Ethereum right now. Like it's incredibly slow and it's incredibly expensive. But the thing that um, one needs to d- dig into is whether that is a sort of a fundamental um, problem that you can't overhaul, uh, like it's it's fundamentally, it's a design problem, like the very first nuclear reactors could not be made smaller because of the, the their sort of structure, or whether it's a case that you can engineer your way through this. So I remember, um, you know, when I first got onto the internet, the entire connection um, between the UK and the US on the internet was 1.5 megabits a second for the, those two economies, um, yeah. and the connection off my mobile phone is 30 megabits a second. So, yeah. so you, I, I think the it's very slow right now and rather expensive. Uh, brigade critique need to say, well, what would you have said about the internet in 1975 or 1983 or 1987? It's completely uninteresting to me that it's expensive now. What's interesting is um would be interesting is, is it impossible to make cheap? <laughs> because if it is, then then it's yeah. got a lower lifespan.
1: I love the Galileo story. I mean, I think our, our AI fueled avatars should meet back here in the year three thousand and we can have a show about the banks issuing a proclamation that maybe blockchains could be useful in some circumstances. Um, <laughs> which brings me on to another big topic that you've written and talked a lot about, mm-hmm. which is, you know, you've just mentioned the banks and, and your suspicion that they will be very slow when it comes to coming to terms with this technology. How do organisations process these incredible exponential technologies that we're living amid now? And I think, you know, we've heard you saying, we, we've, we've read you saying, if you're mm. asking yourself sort of how technologies affect me and my business, you're, you're asking yourself the wrong question. Um, mm. And I'd love you to just talk a bit more about that sort of and, and how you think then organizations should approach these incredible changes, you know, blockchain, AI, quantum computing.
3: Mm. Well, um, I, I think the, the 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 fundamental problem that you have as an organization is, um, you know, is as true as it was now as it was for Kodak, which is can you be bothered? Um, it's really, really hard work <laughs> if you're a senior exec in an organisation, and it might be easier for you, especially if you want your weekends off, to, um, to, to argue that these things are going to happen more slowly because your tenure at the top of an organisation is shorter now than it ever has been. So you, you sort of, you, you can probably get away with it. Um, but you know, but cynicism aside, I mean, there are companies that are uh, changing, and, and and because of it. So Microsoft is a great example. You know, they, they flubbed their response to the Internet in 94. Uh, they were forced to respond to it by acting as um, monopolists and got slapped on the wrist for it. They then missed the mobile mobile wave for exactly the same set of the wrong framing, for the same reason that Monique feels she can't get her head around quantum computing. Steve Barmer couldn't get his head around the iPhone. And now Microsoft's incredible company, that was super, super dynamic. So it's entirely possible to shift to super tanker, and not just Microsoft, Adobe has done the same moving from selling shrink-wrapped package software to being an entirely SaaS-based business um, on subscription within a period of only four or five years um, or, or NVIDIA as another example. Um a few things that I've seen is that, you know, look, it's trite to say this, but getting to grips with anything new is just like a muscle that you have to exercise and you have to continually commit to and and commit to doing it. Microsoft did some super interesting work um, last year where they surveyed several thousand people uh, across Europe, senior execs, about digital and AI readiness. And the thing they found was there was a virtuous cycle. If you had made commitments to AI AI, um, in the right kind of way, um, you made more commitments to it and more commitments and your staff team felt they were more well skilled. They felt their managers were better. You were getting higher ROI. You were using these technologies, not just in experiments, not just in cost cutting, but also in developing new products and new business lines. So, you know, at some sense, in some cases, the point is you really have to step in and actually get on and 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 do it. Uh, as the uh, as the as the main point and and uh, in other words don't be an ostrich then I think there's a lot of nuance and detail about the way in which you actually have to get started um, and also the way in which you need to think about what you're going to do in-house and what you're going to have to bring in outside experts to um, to help you with and I think it's not it's not one size uh, fits all but it is um, more a case for me of like limited sympathy if you're not
2: I think that with the blockchain and quantum people can still manage to you know postpone the idea they have to know about it but uh, I think there's, there's not a uh, ceo in the world who doesn't know that AI is super important um if you look at that field uh, again we're coming back to what what does all this technology have for an effect on our societies the way we live together our economic stability but also our social stability and the way things are going, AI, of course, has you know can have incredible consequences. In which countries or regions do you feel that there is both innovation, but also a way of handling the results of that innovation, which will not be positive for everybody, of course?
3: Mm. Oh, what a brilliant question. Um, so. Um, the ability to handle the consequences of innovation is a um, is a is a question about state and government capacity, and the faith in in the state state and government. Um, so uh, there's some really interesting data just looking back at which will be out in my um, uh, my newsletter uh, tomorrow. In fact, um, if you look at female labour force participation in across. Three countries as a consequence of the coronavirus pandemic. So, the coronavirus pandemic is a great accelerator. So, we use it as a little example. In the US, female labor force participation has collapsed to the levels not seen since Ronald Reagan was, was president. It's
2: um, awful. Yeah.
3: But, yeah, it's awful. But in, in Europe, in France, and as one example, um, female labor force participation hasn't uh, declined. Um, you know, uh, as a consequence of the pandemic. And I think I put that down to, you know, the obviously, obviously there's more work to be done, but there's something about state capacity that that matters here. So on the one hand, you can be really dynamic with your economy um, and, and that dynamism of entrepreneurialism at the edge and people sort of picking up and being able to build companies moves things forward. But at moments of transition, it means that there are many more people who are um, candlestick makers or horse, horse um, blacksmiths or dri- driving horse carriages than there are who are going to be, um, you know, uh, r- repairing electric light systems. Um, and so that that ability to um, manage transitions, I think, it will will be best held by con- countries that have decent state capacity. Uh, more than others, so I think what that means in the U.S. is, um, you know, it'll be it'll be problematic. They've been able, though, of course, for two hundred and fifty years uh, to live with really deep inequalities, and and they make their society work in that way. Um, but it, you know, I think this is where you do need some kind of state capacity.
2: That that would be a good thing for Europe, I guess, right, where the state has. More the feeling that they should be involved in um, amending the consequences. I mean, we talked a little bit before, but maybe David, you want to chip in here as well? Yeah, about, I'm just intrigued uh, about the,
1: future, yeah. your take Kazim, on the, on sit on the future of cities. You know, you've written so well about that and whether you. I mean, obviously, you know, we've, the pandemic has uh, pushed a, pushed a number of people out, certainly outside the city centre, away from their offices. Some people have chosen to leave. You know metropolitan areas what do you think is going to play out there
3: mm. it's really complicated this one uh yeah. so uh let's remind ourselves that out with the exception of um london and new york and los angeles and tokyo um every real city is in asia or sub-saharan africa uh or uh M- mexico or south america Right, That's where they're, they're all going. And I think the idea that the pandemic is going to stop a massive influx of people into Dar es Salaam or Lagos uh, is is farcical. So in 20 years time, will more people live in cities today, a higher proportion of humanity uh, than, uh, than today? Yes, absolutely. Um, might London or Paris have not grown as fast yes that's entirely possible as well uh, but what happens to a mid-sized town in northern Europe is not is not a good lens um, for what's happening with cities but of course many of us listening live in those cities and I think the question is what 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 does happen um, and you know a lot of this was being put into place before the coronavirus uh, pandemic so you had uh, the idea of the 15-minute city. So um, Mayor Hidalgo in Paris talking about that extensively. Um, but it wasn't just just her. Planning was changing in cities, in many of the, the cities that I looked at and mayors I talked to before the pandemic to reclaim streets from cars, to make neighbourhoods walkable. Um, and And so people... What you would expect to see is as the greatest invention of humanity, which is the city, it's this resilient crucible of creativity and mixing, um, that you would expect them to continue. You'd expect them in every domain to be um, to be relevant, but the actual nature of the architecture is often determined by the technologies of the time and the the governance practices that exist. So New York, only managed to achieve a 10 million person city uh, back in the 1930s as a consequence of the availability of steel and electricity and elevators, um, and the arrival of of cars uh, didn't change the geography of cities. They still got New York. In fact, got bigger. It got bigger both in population terms, in density terms, and in physical area. So. Yes, things will change. Not so many people will commute into city centres, but city centres will become mixed use. Um, and there will be a a smearing uh, of the landscape in more mature European cities, which are small by the by the global context, but massive megalopolises of seventy, eighty, one hundred million uh, will will outweigh whatever shifts we make to Barcelona or Amsterdam or Manchester.
2: Okay, Amsterdam here cities don't need to be walkable they need to be cyclable of course that's the dutch person speaking we have some questions from the audience so okay. and we don't have that much time left so uh, some attendees in the audience are concerned about the lack of tech education you already talked about your son and you know not getting quantum as part of the the curriculum um, what do you feel about the gap between the you know the populations that do understand new tech and can move forward with it and innovate with it and a group of people who simply will not get it what's there? you know can we solve this by education is education the answer to all this
3: well i mean education's always the answer uh that's, <laughs> the, that's the best <laughs> bit about it it's just can we get it there in time um it just takes a long time to make to to, to get someone through the system um you know i, I think the the so if,
2: if, if you would boss, boss of education for the world what would you, you put in some quantum, quantum you would, would put in blockchain i guess because you know, you have to start somewhere to understand the basis. Not, well, what is? What else would you put in there?
3: You know, I, th- I think the the teachers know what they need to teach, and that's been my experience in the UK. They absolutely know what they need to teach, um, and how to teach it, and how to bring these more um, computational, literary, critical, reflexive skills into the classroom. Um, but they are hamstrung by the requirements of passing exams, which are is pressure that's applied by statute, by law, but also by parents. So, so in a way, we have the resources that we need. This is not about saying, the te- oh, we have to change a teacher. I mean, the teachers know what they want to teach and how to teach it. It's just that they've got, you know, a thousand French words to get through and they've got a bunch of basic physics and, and biology to get through. Uh, and so, so really, I think... Um, what we have to start to do is somewhat rethink the the model of how we credential people um, and how we, um, uh, you know, what we ascribe to exams. I think it's a really sensitive and difficult question because it's not, because the way employers employ and recruit is based on that system. Uh, and so it's, it's a many, many multi-factor problem. And, um, Around which we actually just have to have a. In the UK, we've not had a good debate about this. It has turned into a battle about traditionalists and relativists, yeah. um, which which is just not not a very helpful conversation.
2: Now. Education changing, we have two huge other topics coming from uh, the people in the audience. I want to point out to them that after this session, we'll actually also go to Clubhouse for more interaction because the topics are climate change and Mm -hmm. universal basic income, both not small, (laughs) (laughs) not to be covered in one sentence topics, and we also still have some questions for you. So to the people from the audience, move with us later on at two or one if you're in the UK, two if you're in Europe, CET, uh, to Clubhouse to continue this conversation. And if you're not an Android person, there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, David, you take over. It's your segment.
1: That's yes. Happen, thank right? you, Monique, because there is one crucial element of the show that we are yet to complete. And mm. it is the famous, dare I say it, infamous, uh, Next World section. So let's get into that. Okay. Okay. Okay, Azim. imagine this. It's the near future. There's an acute crisis here on planet Earth, not that hard to imagine. (laughs) A crack team of technologists have hatched a daring plan to start a new chapter for humanity. They are going to travel along with 1,000 specially selected people to a planet far away, far from our solar system called Next One, and there they will establish a permanent base, a new society, a new home, a new hope, for humanity. Azim Azar, because of your achievements in the field of newsletter writing, thought leadership and general brilliance, you have been selected to be among those first thousand pioneers to travel to next one. Before you undertake this journey, there are five questions you must answer uh, to allow you to board the ship. So let's get into it with question number one Name one luxury physical object that you would like to take to your new home on next one.
3: Okay, perfect. I would take my um, foam roller uh, with me because I will obviously be really stiff after a long journey on a spaceship and we'll need to roll out tension in our muscles and back.
1: That is a highly, highly practical answer. Uh, I'm not sure about the status of, uh, you know, whether you're put in stasis, how long it takes to go to next one. There's a there's a deal of ambiguity around the journey. But I would say that that is an extremely wise precaution. Um, Okay, question number two. What book should everyone read before boarding the ship to go to next one?
3: So this book is, uh, I think is really important. Um, It's a bit dense, so you can read the abridged version. Um, And it's a book by an American political philosopher called John Rawls called A Theory of Justice. And it looks to create a process by which we can come up with the rules for a new imaginary society. Uh, The most important part of which is that we have to make the rules under what's called a veil of ignorance. We make the rules not knowing whether we are going to be an amazing basketball player or somebody super lazy or a brilliant scientist or someone suffering with some chronic illness. But we have to make the rules without that knowledge. Uh, The notion being that a bit like when you cut the cake, you cut the cake and I get to choose the piece. Um, It'll create a system of fairness uh, which may have some inequality, but one that we're happy to live with.
1: A theory of justice. I love it. OK, that cancels the stasis plan because we're going to need to work through that, establish the original position uh, and figure out our basic our basic principles. Yeah. And that gives us something to do on the way. That's fantastic. Question number three, name one exceptional person, a crewmate to take with you among the first 1000 pioneers to next one. Mm-hmm.
3: So this one was actually super easy because her name uh, came into my head straight away. Uh, It's an economist uh, who has come up with a very, very uh, practical and uh, insightful way of managing economies called uh, donut economies. It's a woman called Kate Raworth. Uh, And Kate um, brings together a lot of other thinking, like the work of um, people like Eleanor Ostrom and many others into a single manageable understandable and rather breakthrough idea but the best thing about kate is that she's actually working with many economy uh, countries and cities to implement her ideas of donut economics and i can imagine on next one that would be a, a good way of organizing these these economic resources
1: thank you kate rayworth i would love it if next one becomes a donut society there have even been whispers about kate rayworth on the next show so let's send her this clip and that will persuade her to Mm. come and answer these questions herself um okay question number four a serious one create one law that bans something from planet next one forever
3: ah that bans something okay so i i read this question understood this question as create one law that you would bring with you so i'm going to give you that answer close enough uh, and Close then we enough. can reverse it. So the one law I would bring with us, because it is so easy to explain and it is common across um, uh, cultures, whether they are Buddhist or Hindu or Abrahamic tradition is the is the golden rule, which is to treat others as you would be treated. So if there was one thing we would ban, the rule, law would be let's ban the idea that you might treat someone in a way that you wouldn't like to be treated yourself. Um, And uh, that's that for me is a very, very simple rule that we could establish on next one.
1: Perfect. Yeah. And with some legislative jiggery pokery, we can we can make that we can do it. We can do that as a ban. Yeah. Um, Question number five, your final question. One tradition from planet Earth that you'd like to see replicated on your new home.
3: Yeah. So um, this is related to the last my last answer. So there's a British tradition uh, which is that you always apologize for something, particularly when it isn't your fault. Uh, so, you know, you drive into my parked car, I get out and I say, oh, I'm terribly sorry, David. I'm terribly, terribly sorry. You know, you, you slam a door in my face because you, you're not looking. I'm really sorry. So I think that's a very nice tradition. It's a tradition that, um, you know, takes the temperature down. Out of fracture situation so I would take that one forward always apologizing for things that aren't your fault uh domiciled London
1: I love it I would have absolutely no problem obeying that it's it's, it's I'm sorry deep, about that deep in the bone of uh, <laughs> deep in the bone of any any British person yes yeah. um okay Azim. with those five questions complete you are free to board the ship um I wish you well good luck with the John Rawls on the way Uh, And I think that this is close to all we have time for. Mm
0: -hmm. It is indeed. (laughs) Ina. Amazing. That was an amazing uh, interview and conversation there. I'm so impressed by the deep knowledge that you have on so many levels. We went from quantum to the problematic 19th century education, blockchain, design problems with Ethereum, slowness, exercising your innovation muscle now we're trying to dive into climate change and basic universal income uh, in the clubhouse session after the, the show so i'm really looking forward to that it was a pleasure having you on the show today and also an honor to have you as our contributor to our book the great redesign if you're interested in this book you can order it via our website or in the in the bookshop near you but azim you are working on a book you're on your own Mm-hmm. it is coming up this summer i think what will yeah. that be about
3: yeah so the book's out in september and it's really about the topics we've talked about today which is um how do you uh how should we think about this very frantic age of development um and uh to one of monique's questions is uh what are the tools that you need uh to manage that change
0: goodbye we'll we'll i'll to read dive. it <laughs> yeah read it and we'll try to dive into that in the clubhouse session afterwards so join us there you'll find it um, on the itinerary there Um, should you watch this uh, as an on-demand video you unfortunately missed the live extravaganza and your chance to ask questions but you can sign up for live shows on our website nextcon.eu, so you'll never miss a next live event again so thank you so much again Azim and see you in a bit at Clubhouse next time we'll welcome Eliza Philby to our next stage she is an expert on generational intelligence her talk at our next conference in Hamburg left the audience moved and with many inspiring thoughts Eliza is currently writing her second book on the history of generations so We thought to welcome her back to this little stage of ours to share some of her very smart observations with you in April. So thank you for watching. And also a big thank you to the team behind the scenes, Stefan, Merle, Julian, and Harshit. And of course, to our partners, Accenture Interactive and Factor 3, our media partner, T3N, and our live stream and webinar partner, 23. Thank you so much and see you next time.